This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am standing on my front lawn looking at a giant yellow and white moving truck, which is now parked on my lawn. And it's here because I'm moving, moving into a new neighborhood. Actually, my husband and I just moved all the way across the country, and now our worldly possessions are here to join us. The house we're moving into has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, basement. You know, it's a pretty typical house. But imagine if you were moving into something that was not typical at all. More like moving into a science experiment. That's what the people who lived in the biosphere did for two years. The biosphere was basically this giant ecological system, a closed system built in southern Arizona. And they brought in all kinds of plants and animals. It, it was like a Noah's Ark. And the idea was to try to sustain life for eight humans for two years. And the thought was that this could have applications for living in space in the future. So our first story comes from Renee Gattel, who spoke with two people who lived in the biosphere. She says it's a story about what happens when your neighborhood shrinks. Because these biospherians basically had just seven neighbors who they lived with for two whole years. And before going in, they did all these team-building exercises to ensure that they'd get along for the whole time in there. But once they got inside, food was scarce and tensions were sharp, and they quickly splintered into two factions. My name is Jane Pointer, and I'm one of eight people that lived inside Biosphere 2 for two years and 20 minutes. Before we went into Biosphere 2, the project was the poster child, if you will, for space exploration, for environmental and ecological research. It really did um, talk about hope for humanity and vision for the future. But I think it was overhyped. Tonight we put a fascinating look into our future on the American agenda, a look into the future through the eyes and thoughts of eight men and women who are about to enter a tiny, man-made world in the middle of the Arizona desert. Well, today, we are another step closer to creating the space station of the future. It's a breakthrough experiment, the first attempt to duplicate the wonders of nature on such a large scale. You have to remember that when we started this project in the mid-'80s, almost everyone was saying, you know, is this possible? The whole thing's going to turn into green slime. You're all going to get some terrible lung infection and die. So people really did have some serious questions about whether sealing people up inside an enclosed environment with all these plants and animals was suicide. I'm Linda Lay. I'm a systems ecologist, and for eight years I was involved in the Biosphere 2 project. From 1991 through 1993, I was a biospherian. I lived inside with seven other people without coming out for two years. We went into the facility on September the 26th, 1991. So the day before, September 25th, was full of press, of course. The next morning, very, very early, we had a beautiful, beautiful send-off ceremony. Office of the Governor, proclamation, Arizona Biosphere 2 Closure Celebration Day. 
we walked in, the door closed, and finally when we walked up into our living quarters, we weren't being filmed anymore, and we all just gave a big sigh of relief that we made it. It's kind of like, finally. When we closed the door in the biosphere, the oxygen level was a little bit low than the ambient, and ambient being what we breathe right here outside. And the carbon dioxide was a little bit higher than the ambient. And after a period of months, the carbon dioxide kept increasing inside and the oxygen was decreasing. So we not only had an atmosphere that was not very healthy for humans because of the low oxygen and the high CO2, but we had a puzzle, we had a mystery. At the time, everybody cringed and went, oh my goodness, you know, everybody's going to think, you know, we're, we're complete frauds now because we've got this oxygen problem. And we said, well, we can either all go out and take the vertebrate animals with us, or we can stay in and ride it down and die, or we can add oxygen from the outside and see what we can do to try and lower the CO2. You feel incredibly lethargic. It gives you mood swings. It can cause depression. It's difficult to do anything. You couldn't complete a sentence without taking a breath. It was really quite dreadful. What it felt like was eight crabby people trying to live together and work really hard together. And when the oxygen was added, I've got to say a big weight seemed to be lifted. We ended up having to add oxygen because it was a medical issue. I mean, you just can't survive on the amount that was in the atmosphere when we pumped it in. It was at 14.2% when we we pumped in oxygen. And, And yeah, we let it go down as far as we could. The crew of eight people divided into two factions of four around the six-month mark. The split was contentious. When I look back at my behavior during that time, I felt pretty shocked. It was really awful, where I would be so cold to the people in the other group, walking by them and not even looking at them. And, you know, you're in a closed system, there are only eight people. That's pretty awful. I mostly miss my friends on the outside in Biosphere 1. The most important message that I personally have is the message of being able to communicate. And certainly inside of Biosphere 2, in order to make the entire system work, we need to be able to talk to each other and to discuss with each other what's happening. You know, a lot of what that was about was was resources. We didn't have enough food, we didn't have enough water, we didn't have enough time. One of the things that happens when you're in isolation like that is impression starvation you know we're so used in the in the western world to being constantly bombarded by events by all kinds of things happening by running here and running there and when you're in an isolated environment most of that goes away you're left with yourself you're left with your own brain your own mind biosphere. Some charge it could bring an early end to the scientific project. The Tucson TV report reveals scientists learned the plants alone could not remove enough carbon dioxide from the indoor atmosphere. When it opened, it was touted as a prototype for human colonies in space. It's going to be very difficult if they have the kind of trouble in space that they're having near Tucson. Unfortunately, we set ourselves up for failure by saying at the outset 
that we were not going to add anything for 100 years. Now, I think a lot of people felt betrayed to some degree because, you know, we had said, we're not going to take anything in. It's going to be materially closed. Well, of course, I mean, that's really a rather ridiculous statement. There is our core group of people, the Biospherians and a few of the other people involved in, in the idea of the biosphere, who are like a little army of people who are convinced that it was going to be absolutely perfect when we closed the door. It's silly in retrospect, but maybe we had to think that way in order to get it done. We gotta get out of this place. Produced by Renee Gattel. Yeah. My little girl, you're so young and pretty. And one thing I know is true you'll be dead before your time is due. Yes, you will. Got a little bit of your sofas and patio drunk and stuff like that. Sorry. Yeah, so there's a lot left. That was Gary, our driver. And, yeah, the truck is full of stuff. And the house is full of stuff. And somehow we're going to have to make it all fit. <laughs> Which, I, I guess, is one of the interesting challenges of moving. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith. And um, the house we're moving into is in a neighborhood that seems to be sort of old and established. Like the houses were last remodeled in the 1960s or something. I haven't met my neighbors yet, but I would have to guess that a lot of them have been living here a long time. Still, there's no way they know as much about each other as the people who live on Pitcairn Island. Sarus Faravar says it's like the world's most isolated secret society. Pitcairn Island is this tiny, rocky island out in the middle of the South Pacific. Um, there's actually no beaches there. It's a volcanic outcropping. There's 66 people that live on the island, and all of them are the descendants, in one way or another, of the mutineers from His Majesty's armed vessel, the Bounty. The story of the mutiny on the Bounty has been immortalized in film many times. The men might be in charge. What are you threatening me with? It's not a threat, it's a warning. So that was Anthony Hopkins as Captain William Bly and Mel Gibson as Fletcher Christian in the 1984 movie Mutiny on the Bounty. Um, and later in the film, as was the case in the actual historical event, uh, Fletcher Christian ends up leading a mutiny. And after months of sailing around trying to uh, escape the British, Christian and eight remaining mutineers finally land on the uninhabited Pitcairn Island in January 1790. And I should say that before they got to Pitcairn Island, they kidnapped 11 Tahitian women and six men that they took basically as spouses and laborers, which is a polite way of saying slaves, uh, you know, just because they could. And here's what Meralda Warren, a seventh generation Pitcairner, had to say about it. You know, all, all that is uh, a great part of our history. Across most of the Pacific Ocean, as a child in the 30s and 40s, a guy by the name of Herb Ford began hearing stories about Pitcairn while he was at church. His church is the Seventh-day Adventist church, and they had sent missionaries to the island and in a way kind of rediscovered it in the early 20th century 
And Pitcairn became a beacon for Adventist evangelism. In the 70s, Herb read a few badly reported articles about Pitcairn while he was a journalism professor at Pacific Union College in Northern California. And so then he decided to found the Pitcairn Island Study Center at that Seventh-day Adventist college. And I said, you know, boy, somebody somehow needs to at least have a place where anybody who wants to write truly about Pitcairn can check in. And so I said I want to do that. In addition to just being fascinated and probably obsessed with the story of Pitcairn, like I am and like lots of other people are, he's actually really engaged on a really personal level with the islanders. Um, He's known many of them for decades. He's been corresponding with them by ham radio uh, and in more recent years by email. And also he organized the construction of the only paved road on the island. And he's actually been to Pitcairn twice. Do you feel closer to the Pitcairn, the Pitcairners in some ways than you do folks who are your neighbors actually right here? I, I would say that uh, I'm, I'm more interested in some of my Pitcairn friends than I am some, some local folk, um, simply because we've, we've had a relationship over a long period of time and things like that. And, and uh, when anything hurts the Pitcairn Island people, it hurts me. Everyone on the island is super dependent on everyone else. And I don't mean dependent in in the same way that, you know, I think most people listening to this mean dependent. Like, you know, you can depend on your next door neighbor for extra sugar or whatever. But, you know, I'm talking about dependent like for everyday things of getting stuff on and off the island. Like, so, for example, there's no port on the island. It's just not geographically suited to have one. So in order to get supplies, basic supplies on and off the island, the Pitcairners have to take longboats out to meet passing ships. And as you might imagine, that takes a lot of manpower. Meralda Warren, the seventh generation Pitcairner, told me a story about how her brother Jay and his friend Dennis have been doing this for so long that they can take boats in and out of the harbor without almost saying a word to each other, just through kind of glances and, you know, maybe even a gesture. It's scary, but it's um, it's a sense where sometimes we don't have to say the words. We know what the other is wanting. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that everyone in Pitcairn knows everything about everyone else. They know if you're sick. They know if you don't go to church. They know who you're sleeping with. Uh, and that's, you know, actually an issue that's been kind of a pretty big deal um, or in recent years on Pitcairn. Even though there's this kind of outer veneer of religion, Seventh-day Adventism, it became normal on the island for young men to have sex with girls who, in the rest of the world, would be considered underage. In the late 1990s, a British police officer found out about it, and in 2004, there was a series of trials. And seven men, which on Pitcairn means half the adult male population, were charged with sexual assault. And that includes the island's mayor, Steve Christian. Upon hearing this news, Herb Ford, the guy back in California, was in a bit of an awkward situation. You know, on the one hand, he had this longstanding friendship with all the Pitcairners that goes back decades. And on the other hand, there are these allegations of very serious crimes. And as close as he, as he was and is to the Pitcairners, he's a bit too far, both socially and physically, to know really what was going on. When Steve Christian tells me 
you know, look, uh, the, this, this particular charge, I was in my mid, mid-teens and the girl was 12 and we were out playing around fooling and having fun and we got into this sexual situation and she never told me she didn't want it. Well, when he tells me that, I have to weigh up the fact, has, has this guy told me lies before, you know, and he hasn't. And so I have to have some question in my mind, you know, so I don't know. Now, these trials cost $14 million to undertake and resulted in all but one of these men being convicted. Even though these trials have been over for a few years, there's still a deep division between the one couple that thinks that these trials were justified and the British did everything right, and pretty much everyone else who thinks that these men who were convicted didn't do anything wrong and that the British and everyone else that descended on the island are out to get Pitcairn and the Pitcairners. Meralda Warren, again, the, the seventh-generation Pitcairner, she's part of the, the majority. But she also recognizes the fact that because of this interdependency that they all have, they're not neighbors anymore. They're, they're just family. Uh, for example, I, I may not like somebody, um, couldn't stand the same airspace as, as that person. But when the crunch comes, if that person capsizes in a boat and um, get into difficulty, I'd probably be the first to dive off the jetty and save it. Hearing Meralda say that she would save this couple is exactly what makes Pitcairn such a strange place. I mean, if my neighbor here in Oakland and I got in a, in a major argument over what did or didn't constitute rape, and we couldn't agree on what the proper punishment would be, probably we'd never speak to each other again. And that'd be fine, because, you know, I never talked to them anyway. But in Pitcairn, everybody relies on each other. You can't disown your neighbors on Pitcairn more than you can disown your own family. And so if you think about it, in a way, that leaves Herb as being Pitcairn's only real neighbor, and he lives thousands of miles away. I mean, he emails with them occasionally, you know, maybe he talks to them on the phone or whatever, but he has the luxury of staying out of this infighting because he doesn't live there. And that also means that he can never really understand what it's like to live on Pitcairn as much as he might want to. Sarus Faravar. He recently moved from Oakland to France, where he's teaching English. Do you want to check out the inside of the truck for anything? No, no, it's cool. The massive moving truck just pulled away from the curb, and now the hard part of moving is here, the unpacking. And that also means that this edition of B-Side is all over.
But please tune in next time as I attempt to meet my new neighbors. We'll see how that goes. If you want to learn more about B-Side and our crew, please visit our website. It's bsideradio.org. This show was produced by Renee Gattel and Mia Lobel and me, Tamara Keith. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, neighbor. Hi, neighbor. What do you know and what do you say? Hi, neighbor. Hi, neighbor. Throw all your worries away. Come on and shake my hand and let a grin to the rest. Makes you feel so grand to get your chin off your chest. I'm shouting, hi, neighbor. Hi, neighbor. Time to play and say hi.